you are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. Well, good evening. It's good to be back with you again this week for our continuing session in missions here at the Entrust Institute. My name is David Jackson. Last week I was with you. We talked about theology of mission. Tonight we're going to be talking about history of mission. It's a very important topic. Let me start with a passage of scripture from Isaiah 54. There, Isaiah 54, in the King James Version tonight, um, I'll tell you why in just a sec, verses 2 and 3, this text became the basis for a message that was preached by William Carey many, many years ago in 1872, I believe. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about the biblical basis of mission, then Pastor Travis talked with all of us, uh, told us the story of William Carey and the work that he did in England as he became what we call the father of the modern missionary movement. Um, I really think this is the watershed event, the watershed event in English mission history. And it certainly becomes significant for the whole world in relationship to how William Carey's work was then carried on and multiplied by those of us that have followed him in the years since. Now we're going to talk about the whole timeline tonight and everything else, but we're going to start with this passage because he became famous for preaching a sermon after the event we talked about two weeks ago that was based on this text, Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. You'll recall that um, Pastor Travis two, uh, two weeks ago talked about the fact that many in his day did not believe that it was important for us to fulfill the Great Commission. In fact, they believed that the apostles and the early followers of the apostles had completed it in their own lifetime. Uh, they either held that belief or they held a belief that God supernaturally would intervene in the life of those that were unbelievers around the world, unreached people groups and such, and reveal to them in a specific, special, unique, supernatural way what he was wanting to do in their lives and would call them into the kingdom. Now, uh, William Carey had come from an obscure bivocational background where he had grown up in the Church of England, had become congregational as a nonconformist and eventually a Baptist. And in the midst of being at this meeting of uh, ministers that were gathering in the Northamptonshire area, Northamptonshire area of England in 18... 76, I believe it was. Uh, let's see. If I'm recalling that correctly, that is not correct. It was 1786, 1786. He said, what about the other nations? We need to take the message to them. And a very well-known elder pastor in the area stood up and said, young man, um, be quiet, sit down. There is absolutely no need to do that. If God wanted them to be saved, they would already be saved. Well, Kerry, uh, that didn't satisfy him. And so he went and began to write a book that six years later came out as the inquiry of the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. 
And um, he talked about missionary principles and he talked about the need geographically around the world to see that the gospel was preached in places where it had not been preached. And he began to preach a sermon based on this passage of scripture. Let me read that. Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, the pagans, the the lost peoples of the world and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. That text from verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 54 became the basis for his message, attempt great things, expect great things, in which he said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God, a, a credo that he has been known for since that time. And of course, in the months following, he was able to put together a trip along with a doctor by the name of John Thomas, who already knew the language of India, the Bengali language. And they headed over and others followed them as they gathered together and formed the Baptist Missionary Society at that time. And in the midst of their efforts of going overseas, they obviously had widespread preaching and distribution of of the Bible and the language of the people as they uh, learned that language and then translated it to them. They planted churches. They studied non-religious, non-Christian religions and did ministerial training, all of these things. And in the midst of the time, he never returned to England. And in 1834, uh, when he died, his legacy was that more more than 40 translations of the Bible had come out of his work. A dozen mission stations across India had been started and developed. He had worked to produce grammars and dictionaries in many languages. His sons became missionaries. They got rid of some of the uh, grosser Hindu um, evil, social evils, and, and had done much work among the people to help them see the difference that Christ makes. And that picture, that watershed moment, became a door that opened um, the filter of many missionaries coming overseas and seeing the gospel proclaimed. And it didn't start really with William Carey, even though I've shared the story of William Carey and the work that he did, but he was greatly influenced by David Brainerd and the power of prayer that had much to do with his work among the Indians in New Jersey years before in America. And John Elliott, who reached the Massachusetts Indians and the Algonquin Indians in in the same state uh, many years before. Those were the guys that really influenced him and caused him to take a second look at seeing the gospel proclaimed to other nations. And tonight we're going to talk about history of mission. My name again is David Jackson. I've worked with the Home Mission Board since 1984 and I've been located in six different states. I've also been involved in mission efforts overseas on four different continents. I've been involved in pastorates and church plants and replants. I've taught at different theological schools. Um, I've done interims and transitional pastors. Obviously, all of these things overlap, but the work has, from early in my life, involved me in missions, and I want to be all about the mission of God. I recognize God doesn't waste an experience, and yet if we don't learn them well, many times we're destined to repeat the circumstances until we, we learn what is necessary for us to move forward, and unfortunately, I've had to do that some in my own life, but I think what you're going to hear tonight in the history of mission is that the the Christian church has had to do that, and maybe they haven't learned all those lessons very well. And unfortunately, some of them we have been destined to repeat. Now, I am talking about the history of mission tonight. 
I'm not talking about the history of the church, the Christian church as a whole. Uh, we, were not, we won't talk about famous names like Augustine and Aquinas. We won't talk about Luther and Spurgeon, um, except maybe in passing. It, obviously, this is a huge topic. Um, so I just want us to try to hit highlights and keep clear the things that we need to and to recognize that when we talk about the history of mission, it always starts with God. And then we want to focus on our role in it as human beings, as God has given us that commission to be a part of it. So tonight, really, our key idea is, is this, that what God wants to do in and through us is to recognize, first of all, that history is his story. It begins and ends with him, and it involves God's people by his choice as we respond to his commission to make disciples of all people. So over time, um, human beings have responded differently to that commission. And um, sometimes it's been very positive, very good, very uh, fulfilling, and very impacting. But other times it's not been so impacting or so good. And we're going to look at that tonight as we uh, talk about this. But if we're really going to talk about history, we can't start with us. We really have to start with God and re be reminded of the story of, um, of mission which scholars often call salvation history. If you read books that talk about uh, the work of God down through history, you will see them talk about these four things, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. These four stages that take place in, um, in, in this thing we call time. Now, creation, obviously, is when God created a perfect, sinless world, his creation with a desire to establish his kingdom and to fellowship with us. That was what creation was all about, as we read in the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis. But in the third chapter, we're introduced to the fall of man, we call it, the fall of man. And that's when humanity sins, when Adam and Eve um, are deceived by the uh, serpent and take of the fruit and disobey God and rebel against him. And, and the Bible calls that sin. And sin brought death and separation from God. They hid from God. It, it brought eternal judgment um, uh, apart from God. And that's true for all of us because uh, we're all in Adam here upon the earth. But, but in the midst of uh, our separation, in the midst of our sin, uh, God loved us so much that he sent his son and demonstrated that love to us in Christ Jesus. And we call that third stage redemption. Through this son, he provided Jesus. Uh, Jesus died as a substitute in our place, and he atoned for our sin that we might experience redemption through him. And so when we come into a relationship with, with him, we experience that redemption. We experience forgiveness. We begin to experience eternal life, and we uh, find reconciliation with the Father. And out of that, he commissions us, human beings that are now redeemed, to be a part of joining him in this mission to the world. This is where, you know, you walk into a mall and you go and you see a sign that has the map of all the stores and everything, and there's a little X on it that says, you are here. Well, this is where the X is for us. We are here in the storyline. Post-redemption, in the midst of the commission, where we are to make sure everyone else knows this gospel, because we are told in the scripture it is necessary that this gospel be proclaimed to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
Now that brings us to the fourth and final stage, which is the restoration that takes place at the end of time. Ultimately, at his return and into eternity, God brings that restoration to his cosmos, to creation, and to humanity. And we, as his children, are able to abide with him forever for his glory and for our good. I'm reminded of one uh, missions writer who says the church is missionary by nature because God, through his spirit, calls, creates, and commissions the church to communicate to the world that the redemptive reign of God has broken into human history. And that's good news, right? That's encouraging, and that's uplifting, and that gives promise and hope to all of us. So we kind of see the big picture of what God is doing in the story of the history of mission, but now I want us to focus on our part post-commission, or at least starting at the commission, and coming forward to today as we kind of overview mission history. And I, I have to acknowledge a guy who wrote a book. His name is David Bosch. David Bosch wrote a book called Transforming Mission, um, Paradigm Shifts in the Theology of Mission, I think is the subtitle. And it, it's, it's a book by this, uh, this professor that Christianity Today is called one of the most hundred significant books of the last century. And thus it kind of uh, tells you its importance, but really what I wanted to use that acknowledgement for was to say, hey, we're going to kind of look at some of these things. I've adapted them a bit. I've changed a few things up, but the framework of the times in history that we're going to talk about kind of come from Bosch. All right, so let's kind of do this. This is kind of a 10-15 minute overview of, um, of mission history. Let's start with the early church era. That, that's about uh, 33 AD at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to the end of the first century. And uh, this is all about mission history. It's all about mission theology. As the church begins as a Jewish church, it moves to Western Asia. And by that time, by the end of the century, it becomes largely a Gentile church. Scripturally, this here is all about making disciples of all. All people groups, all nations, doing anything and everything they can to take the message that is proclaimed in Matthew 28, 18 to 20 to the people that don't know about Jesus. And obviously the goal then of the mission is to make disciples. And this discipling process becomes integral in the apostles' life and the early churches that they start. People like Paul uh, write epistles and Peter write epistles to the church to try to give them direction on how they follow Christ and how they can live their lives to be more like Christ. And they uh, cluster people to themselves and, and teach them how, through their example, to be imitators of them as they are of Christ. And so through modeling and through uh, training, they help people to become followers of Jesus. Now that baton was passed to these apostles, these sent out ones at the Great Commission in Acts 1.8, where it says, you know, when the Holy Spirit falls on you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But that Acts 1.8, um, it didn't really happen right away. The early church, when Pentecost came upon them, they stayed in Jerusalem and it took persecution to scatter the church and start them spreading the gospel to others. Uh, a huge major event that takes place is in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is stoned and he becomes the very first Christian, what we call martyr. The word witness is maturius in Greek. It literally is 
transliterated letter for letter it would be martyr in English and that's where the word comes from he's a witness who dies for his witness for Christ and so Stephen becomes the first but that scatters the church and under the scattering of the church people like Philip the original one of the original deacons goes to Samaria and carries the message by way of the Ethiopian eunuch to Ethiopia the church at Antioch becomes the first mission church um, we'll come back to that uh, Barnabas and Saul with John Mark are the very first missionaries sent out by a local church. In Acts chapter 13, we read about that. And then Barnabas and John Mark complete two missionary journeys, and Paul completes at least three with many associates, including guys like Silas, Timothy, and Luke. They're all talked about in Acts 13 through 28, and eventually Paul's arrested and imprisoned until his death in Rome. But he still sends letters and messages to many other places and other disciples also share the gospel elsewhere. Um, some may have gone to Alexandria and Egypt, some maybe even to India, uh, carrying the message of Jesus Christ wherever they could, seeing many saved, but all persecuted eventually by government authorities or uh, pagan religions. There were a lot of things that caused this spread to happen well. I mean, it was the fullness of time, right? that Jesus came. And in the midst of it, there was a, a peaceful reign that came from the Roman Empire that enabled people to travel from place to place without any difficulty. Uh, a common lifestyle that the Greek Empire years ago had kind of brought to people, a common language that they spoke in trade and commerce that made missionaries and apostles easy to be able to communicate the message. The Jewish synagogue became a part of their strategy, and on and on and on I could say about all the things that was happening in this time period. But really, it was the centrality of an emphasis on last things in their theology that caused them to recognize the urgency to share the gospel, to do whatever they could. And so they kind of see themselves, I'm going to use a big word here, they kind of see themselves in the church as an eschatological community, even apocalyptic in the sense that they believe that they were living in the last days of of the world and that Jesus was going to come back at any time and people needed to know that and they needed to be ready and they needed to have the opportunity to respond to the gospel. So because this passion in theology was central to them, it caused them to, um, uh, to proclaim the gospel to everyone they could as quickly as possible. Now, by the end of the first century, all the apostles had moved off of the scene. John was the last who died on the Isle of Patmos, we think. And we move into a new era, the era of orthodoxy, uh, the, the, uh, what we call the early church fathers, the patristic fathers lived during this period, the 200s to the 500s. And, you know, by the end of the 500s, the, the gospel has spread throughout northern Africa to southern Europe. But the language is largely Greek by this time, and there are two major cities in Christianity, Rome to the west and Constantinople, or today's Istanbul, to the east. What happened that made this happen? Well, scripturally, this era, the Orthodox era, was really more about God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, his only begotten son. And the challenge began to be about, well, what does that mean? God and his only begotten son. And there was confusion and there was um, disagreement about what that all meant. In other words, the goal of mission was to share this life with everybody in all its fullness, abundant and eternal everywhere they went. But a move came away from mission and toward 
agreement that needed to be focused on so that we could believe together what was essential and necessary. The message itself was splintering. So the theology moved from a theology of last days to the theology of God, you know, of theology itself. The church began to focus on being a worshiping community and wanted the liturgy to be um, standardized everywhere that they went. And in the midst of all of that was going on, um, there were the challenges of those that were coming up and saying, Jesus is just a man or Jesus is just a spirit. He's not fully God and fully man. And so this was part of what was happening in church life. Now, in political life, the Roman Empire had been taken uh, by a, a man who was emperor named Constantine. And Constantine had a vision of Christ as he was getting ready to go out into battle in about 310, 311 AD. And in the midst of that vision, uh, he saw the cross of Jesus Christ and he said, conquer in this or with this. And it was a picture of the cross held up um, as a sign of victory. And so he, uh, story goes at least, legend says, that he put that on the shields of his army and they won this tremendous battle. And that day he uh, committed to Christ as his uh, savior and um, then made the uh, whole Roman Empire uh, Christian by way of an edict. He said it's the state religion now, it's the accepted religion, this edict of Milan in 312 AD. And all of a sudden, overnight, as it were, Christians now become valued citizens, not vilified enemies of the state. And people are even forced to become Christian in practice, though obviously not in belief. They are, they are told you're going to be Christian. I remember in my Christian history course uh, when I was uh, in seminary, how the professor told me about, um, told us about the story of uh, soldiers that had been marched by the, the riverbanks of the river there, the Tiber River in Rome. And um, as they were marched by the riverbank, someone would reach up and grab branches of uh, low-hanging limbs from trees and, and reach them down into the water until they were wet and then would let go of them and they would sprinkle the armies with water. Thus, they were baptized and now they were Christian. It was that kind of uh, ridiculously artificial, forced Christianity upon the people that caused many of them to feel like, oh, well, we're Christian. We're a Christian people now, even though they did not have a personal relationship or identification with Christ, nor had they turned from their sins and put their trust in Christ alone for salvation. Constantine and his sons identified Christianity so much with the empire that they blurred the difference. And thus, we deal with nationalism being uh, wed, as it were, to theology for the very first time in, um, in the Western world. In fact, in 325, when he calls the Council of Nicaea, this event that determines the identity of Christ, the deity and humanity of Christ, fully God and fully man, he said to the bishops there, you're the bishops of those inside the church, but I'm the bishop of those outside of it. And so consequently, uh, the rest of this era deals more on theology than it does really missional advancement. So by 500s, now that has ended and we move into a third era, the Christendom era, 
the era in which this becomes institutionalized from 600s to the 1400s. It's the longest era of any of these historical eras we talk about tonight. The church had reached a huge crisis. The Roman Empire begins to decay from within and collapses from without. Pagan people conquer the nation, the Roman Empire, and darkness descends over the world where Christianity had once been highly esteemed. And so now the church descends into rightly called the Dark Ages. And in the midst of these uh, Dark Ages, little progress is obviously being made. Um, and by uh, about 1000 AD, the church has largely disappeared again now from North Africa and the Middle East in the face of a surging Islam especially during the years 600 to 1215. The church shrinks back dramatically. Charles Martel at the Battle of Tours turns the tide against Islam as they try to um, come in waves into Europe and conquer it. But the battle continues into what we know as the Crusades with conflicted responses. The church goes through an identity crisis in this era, slowly starts coming back, but a tug of war happens between its two most significant centers, Rome and Constantinople, and eventually it splits with each of them wanting control and insisting on their own type of theocracy, a God-led government in the world, and uh, the Eastern Orthodox churches side with Constantinople, the Roman Catholic churches side with Rome, and then they both began to try to, as it were, turn to expanding their form of Christendom anywhere and everywhere they can in the then known world. That's the goal of the mission. But scripturally, this is all about compelling people to come in. Luke 14, 23, Jesus uses that phrase in a, in a parable and he says, compel them to come in um, and be with us. And so here's what happens. The centrality of church and state and culture and how they intersect, how they integrate, how they overlap becomes prevalent in the life of the church. And obviously it came to a head with the schism that took place in the church in 1054 over control and theology. But then the resurgence of Islam takes place and they capture Jerusalem. And so the church attempts to see itself as a powerful conquering institute, specifically through seven crusades that take place from 1095 to 1272. And these are organized and, and affected by different leaders. Um, they have varying results. Some uh, Christians win, some they lose dramatically. Um, all in all, it's a terrible failure for the church. It was focused on three goals, a reclaiming of the Holy Land, especially Jerusalem, to help the Byzantine Empire uh, and, and uh, um, regain control of Constantinople and to heal the schism with the Eastern Church and the Western Church, all in the name of Jesus. Uh, in some ways, it's, a, it's like a revisitation of the conquering Constantine of years past, uh, but um, it, it, it fails. It is very unsuccessful. What it does succeed in doing is institutionalizing the church, and now onward Christian soldiers marching as to war becomes the battle cry for politics as well as theology. They become intertwined. C.S. Lewis said, almost all crimes of the church in Christian history have come about when the church has confused its role 
with that of politics. And maybe he's right. Here we see Christendom attempting theocracy through the Holy Roman Empire in the German states now. And the church reaches its zenith in power. This is the place where it is most powerful in its history. But it moves or ushers in to a sense of hubris, arrogance among its people that causes many to begin to doubt and question whether these things are biblical, scriptural, from God, or only the will of man. And thus we enter into another era, the Reformation era in the 1500s to 1750. That period begins to take place. And scripturally, this is all about Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. In some ways, this is an extension of Christendom, but it promised more. By now, obviously, the center of gravity has moved to Europe, and the focus for us and the impact upon us has been the Western Church out of Rome, not the Eastern Church in Constantinople. And in the midst of this, the goal of the church is, or the Reformation movement is really renewal. Renewal in both theology and practice, recognizing that both parts have steered and veered far away from what God wants and requires. And so the call is to the centrality of Scripture, sola scriptura, and it plays a huge role in this era. In fact, uh, so much so that people like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli want to see the language of the Bible put into the vernacular, the language of the people so that they can read it themselves, so that they can uh, allow it to speak to their spirit, not through a mediating priest, but only by the Holy Spirit himself. And so in the midst of this work, obviously Luther shares his 95 Thesis um, in AD fifteen seventeen. That becomes the straw that broke the camel's back, as it were, um, and brought about, ushered in the Reformation. But theology begins to focus on competition and elitism instead, and that hinders the spread of the gospel. The attention that is turned to theology from the reformers um, and control and authority becomes the ruling factors for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, among Protestants, the lack of mission zeal and emphasis in this era, scholars have been greatly puzzled by that, and they, uh, they have called it the great omission uh, why? Because um, I think some of them felt like uh, those that are going to follow them in William Carey's era, that the Great Commission had already been fulfilled by the era of the uh, apostles in the early church years before. But others had focused themselves upon their own reforms in a life and death uh, match with uh, the existing church and those religious wars that were going on and that limited their con contact with pagans, their interest in unbelievers during this time. They rejected the efforts that the traditional institutional church has made to reach them and instead set up kind of a provincial ecclesiology, a provincial doctrine of the church that was more territorial and was often state-run still. This Christendom idea being carried forward, and there was no longer any need for an urgency or a theology that said we are in the last days. They were setting in for the long haul here. Now, a separate strand uh, of, of history that's going on outside the church during this time that intersects the church, but outside the church, is colonialism. 
It actually predates this by uh, a few decades, but it's still in its infancy, and it begins to rule the day by the time uh, Luther uh, ushers in the Reformation period in 1517. Colonialism, um, you know, begins to claim nations in other parts of the world for first uh, countries like Portugal and Spain, and then later France and England and others, um, the Netherlands and such in um, the old world as they go to the new world. And as they begin to um, go to those places, they would plant a flag and they say they would claim this in the name of, let's say, Spain and Jesus Christ. And they would say both and they would believe, I think, to some degree, both. But as these explorers uh, begin to discover these other parts, they would, they would claim them, and thus they would expand Christendom to these places where missionaries would soon follow, mostly through monastic orders to start with. They were monks and such that would set up missions in the New World, but other ways that were to follow as well. Well, um, eventually, the Reformation gives, uh, gives way to what we call the modern missions era in about 1750 AD, and it lasts for about 200 years, so 1940. Orthodoxy gives way to a resurgent eschatology, a, a resurgent belief in last things. The commission uh, no longer is felt that it has been fulfilled, that great commission, but now fueled by William Carey and others, the church is forced again to look outward. And so scripturally, this here is all about come over and help us. The Macedonian call, the, the call from, from people that have not yet heard the gospel, we need to know about Jesus. And the goal of the mission becomes salvation and, and through salvation, a better life for all who have the opportunity to hear it and experience what Jesus can do in their life. And so the centrality of the mission is the task itself. We're going to people without the knowledge of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel wherever we can. And so God begins to move in the hearts of individuals to start missionary agencies and to send missionaries overseas to, to share the gospel. Roman Catholics do this too. They, they start 17 new missionary orders during the 19th century and doing, doing whatever they can, though they're mostly regrouping and backing away from missions. Protestants just the opposite. Anglicans, Pietists, Moravians become the first in pioneering cross-cultural missions. But in 1792, at that Baptist Missionary Society, as it forms, uh, others begin to follow suit with the Baptists like William Carey and begin to send missionaries overseas, Congregationalists as well, to see that the new world Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in this era then that the Southern Baptist Convention begins in 1845 with the desire to send missionaries overseas. That was um, the, the ultimate reason why it uh, focused in its constitutional statement. It says that to provide a general organization for Baptists in the United States and its territories for the promotion of Christian missions at home and abroad. That in 1845. And the church in this period sees itself largely as a civilizing community wherever it goes. Um, but by the mid-20th century, the church has started declining in the West. And now the center of gravity begins to move to places like Asia and Africa and Latin America, where the church begins to literally explode 
And so that issues us into our emerging mission era from about 1940 to the current day. And in this time period, um, what we've seen happen is that the church has largely become non-Western and the theology and its mission are rapidly following suit. Now, scripturally, this here is all about they preached, they drove out demons, they healed them. Mark chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 talks about Jesus' ministry that way. And because of the large influence of Pentecostal and charismatic missionaries that have gone out during this time period uh, over the explosion of the last 80 years, um, there's a lot more to that. But there's also about preliterate people and much of what takes place in biblical days seems to be seen in a resurfacing in preliterate people around the world today who need uh, to see the validation of God's power at work in the life of missionaries and others in their midst. Uh, the goal of mission is uh, discipling the nations in this time period, or people groups it's called, for both their spiritual and their social transformation, recognizing that not just the Bible, but the life of Christ is not about information, but it's about transformation. And so the church sees itself as a pilgrim community with a centrality of focusing on the holistic way, the holism of life, deed, word, sign, all these things working together in the life of a person so that they experience Christ in all areas, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, all of this taking place and interdenominational agencies grow like like rabbits in this time period. In fact, after World War II, <clears throat> uh, this period that has been so transitional and traumatic for world missions to go through two world wars and a depression worldwide now is met with great optimism and the results are literally unbelievable. Creativity, flexibility, positive expectancy begins to come forward. America's thrust into uh, the, the forefront as a mission center of the world after World War II. And now, worldwide, there are at least 3,210 agencies for missions that are in effect. So there's a lot that's happened over the many years. Um, and this is where, obviously, I got involved in missions and recognized that um, the power of the gospel uh, has the ability to bring salvation to everyone who believes and to go on mission trips to England and New England and South Korea and Brazil and, and to, to serve in, in, as a missionary in Italy and Puerto Rico and to, to carry the message and represent uh, Southern Baptists and sharing the gospel in pioneer areas like California and Maryland and De Delaware. So all of those things are because this is where we're at and this is the opportunity before us. So that's kind of the flyby of the whole of history in um, mission and what's happened here. I'd like us to go back and talk about, if we have time, a few of the hinge events, what I call hinge events. These are events that have really made a difference in history and, and some key figures and then come back and draw some insights at the end. So let me do that as we um, as we think about this just a little bit more uh, tonight. Uh, let's talk about in the early church era, you know, the, the hinge event, the, the event that swung open the door for the gospel was Antioch becoming a, the first mission center, the first missionary church. Acts chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 tell us about that, that this was the Holy Spirit who initiated it in the midst of a prayer meeting among the elders in the church. And as they were praying, 
the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work that uh, I've called them to do. And they lay hands on them after praying some more and send them off. They go off. They have their first missionary journey. They come back, report to the church and continue it. And Paul's missionary strategy develops over these years as he begins to be involved and go. It's, it's not just itinerant, move from place to place missions. Uh, now it was strategic, focused on places where there were Jewish synagogues originally, trade centers originally, people that would understand the Old Testament and the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled by the Messiah so he could proclaim the Messiah having come to earth. But it, by the time his third missionary journey rolls around, his strategy has shifted from moving from place to place to focusing and staying in one place. And he stays in Ephesus for about three years. He starts a mission center, as it were, in the school of Tyrannus. And he begins to raise up folks that go out. Scholars think that all seven churches that were a part of um, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapters two and three, were probably started by students that he sent out, church planters going across that region. It's a circular route that comes and goes back and forth from Ephesus. And uh, so that in Acts 19.10, when it's talking about Ephesus um, and this school, it says, so then all the residents of Asia heard the gospel. And so the powerful, uh, the powerful work there and the key figure of Paul and his work as he developed other leaders, other apostles, left them in places as he did Timothy in Ephesus and, and Titus in Crete and, and others along the way, Luke to write the Chronicles and history and on and on. They become very significant in impacting us even to this day as we think of ourselves as a missionary church. This is where it all started at this church in Antioch of Syria. Now in the next era, in the era of um, the orthodoxy, of the church. Uh, the, obviously, the hinge moment is Christianity becoming a state religion. Um, scholars are quite uh, conflicted over whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. Most think it was a bad thing, that by the church becoming so wed to the state, um, it compromised its theology, it compromised its witness, and um, it failed to be evangelistic in nature. And obviously that was a huge moment. They moved away from being persecuted to being accepted and now valued. And yet at the same time, it caused them to be apathetic in most places in the kingdom. Now outside the kingdom, it was a different story. Uh, the key figure in this time period for me was St. Patrick. We call him St. Patrick. And um, he, he served outside of the, what we know as the Roman Empire. Um, and in the midst of his work in Ireland, it's, it's a very interesting story. He was uh, raised in a Christian home, but did not become a Christian himself by the age of 16. He was captured by a group of marauding pirates who were uh, plundering the coastline of England. And he was taken and sold as a slave in Ireland, where he served for six years with a family where he was a shepherd and, and uh, took care of other wild animals. And in the midst of that time, had opportunity to reflect, much as we talked about in our sermon today, and Moses and his wilderness experience had time to reflect on, on his life and why he was there, what God was trying to teach him. And, every, and in the midst of this time, Patrick says that he became a, a follower of Christ, a believer. He trusted in Christ as his Savior and Lord. And um, about six years after being enslaved there, he is uh, met with a vision who says, uh, get to the coast and flee. 
And so he, he heads off to the coast, escapes. Nobody comes and tries to capture, recapture him. Nobody comes and tries to take him back. He makes it all the way to the coast and, and heads over uh, the water back toward homeland. I don't know if he went to Gaul, France first, or, or back straight to his homeland. I think, again, scholars are not totally sure on that. But he gets back to England and he's there. He's continuing his education. He's now a Christian. He's trying to learn everything he can about ministry. And in the midst of ministry, he receives a call from God. And this call from God that comes to him, he recounts it in one of his own writings. He says, I saw a man coming as if he were from Ireland. His name was Victor Victorious, and he carried many letters. He gave me one of them. I read the heading. The heading of the letter was The Voice of the Irish. And as I opened the letter, I, I imagined at that moment I heard the voice of those very people who were near the woods where I had been enslaved. And they cried out with one voice, We appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come again and walk among us. And so Patrick felt like that was a call back to mission uh, on the island of Ireland. And so he went back and he spent the rest of his life there in Ireland, more than 30 years. And he had an incredible strategy to reach the people there. He would go and he would start a church, as it were, as close to their idol worship locations and towns and villages. And he set up what we would call the initial power encounters. It's seen in the, in the Old Testament, too, where um, God's people would, would um, set up temples and such uh, near where pagan altars had been or, or memorial stones. And in Patrick's day, he would then uh, he would reach people with the gospel as, as his workers would go out sing the Psalms of the Old Testament uh, he put them to song and they sang them while they worked and farmed and other people would hear the scripture as they were talking and he would meet with tribal chiefs and, and he would lead them to the gospel. Whole communities would come to know Christ and they would become a part of the church and he would plant that church there and he'd move on to the next town and he'd do this. And so by the end of his life, he said that he had baptized thousands, he had planted hundreds of churches um, and, and he in a sense has become the patron saint of all church planters down through the years um, as a result of that experience. Let's move on to the next period. Uh, Christendom era is a harder era for us because this is the era when we have very few great evangelistic witnesses, the missionaries that are doing what need to be done. Obviously, um, there are orders established and monks go out. People like Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, and Dominic, uh, the Dominican, um, they go out during this time period and they establish orders that are really missionary in their attempt, their desire. That, that is the whole reason they were started. They oppose this thing we call the Crusades, but the Crusades still happened. In the midst of all of this period, there was a guy named uh, Raymond Yol. Uh, Ramon Yol was from uh, Majora. He's really the first missiologist in Christian history. At least that's what scholars say about him. He had a vision of Christ too, suspended on the cross that came to him five times in all and inspired him with three intentions, basically to give up his soul for the sake of God's love and honor, to convert a tribe, the Saracens, to Christianity, and to write the best book in the world against the errors of unbelievers, apologetics. And so he becomes a, a monk and he does these things and he gives 50 years of tireless service to the 
for the purpose of reaching and converting unbelievers to Christianity. He's one of the very first to develop really a theory of missions, a detailed plan of how to reach and convert those that do not yet have uh, the gospel. He called that the fool of love. Uh, and, and, it, and he planned in this process to kind of convince and, and convert them by, by means of reason and debate. And uh, he also opposed the militaristic ways of the Crusades and felt it better to go with a message of love and to share a gospel of peace and to do what he could do through conversation and prayer to see others come to know Jesus. In the Reformation period, most of the major reformers were focused on theology and the accuracy of that theology. Um, but in the midst of the discovery of the new world, that hinge moment that was so significant and important for the opening up of new, new um, mission fields for the world to be able to explore and to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were a few folks that did what they could do to see the gospel go forward to the ends of the earth. One guy was named Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. That's a big, fancy, funny name, isn't it? Um, German guy um, <clears throat> who inherited from his uh, noble family. He was the only son, the nobility of his castle and lands and, and all of his uh, wealth. And as he came under the influence of the pietists that had preceded him, uh, people like Philip Spencer and August Franca, um, he began to support the Moravian mission and the cause of world missions. And he did anything and everything he could with his own fortune to shelter them, to equip them, train them, and then send them to the world. And so uh, the pietists under Zinzendorf's uh, influence went to places like the Virgin Islands from Europe. They went to Greenland. They went to Suriname, the Gold Coast, South Africa, Jamaica, Antigua, the American Indians. Enjoy. You can hear the idea that they're going all over the world as they understood it then. Really forerunners of the Wesleyan revival of John and Charles Wesley in America and, and even William Carey's Baptist Missionary Society. He's the one you may have heard of before who has a famous quote, preach the gospel and die. That's all it's about. Live your life for the gospel, he said. And don't worry about whether anybody remembers you or not, because it's all about eternity and it's all about Jesus, not about you and me. Well, we've talked about the modern missions era, but I want us to highlight a couple things again. The SBC, we said, was established in 1845. This is the period of the Great Awakenings and, and William Carey being uh, that forerunner, that harbinger of, of the missionary movement to go overseas. It's also the period in which uh, we see people like uh, Adoniram Nayan Judson and Luther Rice go over from America as missionaries, the first missionaries out of this country to go, wanting to join Kerry, but eventually not being able to do that. They go to Burma instead, and there begin to proclaim the gospel in that part of the world. It's a period in which home mission starts in, in countries like England, where people like William Booth and the Salvation Army start reaching their own people and ministering to the needs of the people in their own land as well. And there were these people that influenced Carrie I mentioned before, David Brainerd through his journal that was uh, put into print by Jonathan Edwards, uh, the prayer journal of David Brainerd, um, which greatly impacted William Carey's life and the life and ministry of John Eliot, 
a missionary in the 1660s in Massachusetts to the Indians that started 14 Indian cities here, they were called, in America. These cities were clusters of, of Indians that were reached by the translation of the gospel into their own language, the Algonquin language and the, the Massachusetts language. They were able to read it, respond to it, and then cluster in communities that were essentially built around churches um, that were there first seen the evidence of sharing the gospel with other people that caused Carrie to feel like there are so many unreached people groups still in the world. We need to do whatever we can do to see that they have the gospel as well. In the SBC, Billy Graham, Lottie Moon, Annie Armstrong all lived during this era. You know much about them. I won't pause to talk about them tonight, but you have the opportunity to study them further if you want. And then in our own current era, the Pentecostal movement has been huge, as I mentioned to you before. It's been incredibly significant in terms of numbers, the impact that it's made over the years as well. I think if we were to literally put numbers on it, I think I can do that for you tonight. I can tell you that um, in 1960, there were only 12 million Pentecostals, but by 2010, there were 178 million. And if you add charismatics to that, they now number over 426 million worldwide, with 72% of all believers in Latin America being Pentecostal. And so you see, it's become a worldwide movement, and they are passionate missionaries in doing whatever they can do to see that the gospel is proclaimed overseas. Parachurch groups have gone, and we talked about that before, over 3,200 of them um, in doing whatever they can do, these mission agencies. I I beg your pardon, they're not all 3,200 are non-denominational or parachurch. Some of them are denominational mission agencies, of course. But there are many parachurch organizations. And so let me highlight with a key figure here, we're getting close to the end, a guy named Cameron Townsend who helped start one of these movements. Um, he was a missionary and went to Guatemala in 1917. And he became very frustrated as a missionary. They're trying to reach the, the Indian indigenous people through the Spanish language. They had had conquerors, conquistadors that had come years before, taught them the, the, the Spanish language. Uh, but it wasn't really their heart language. And he realized that. And he knew that if he was ever going to reach them, he had to be able to get this into their heart language, the gospel. So he began to work on the Cachacal, I think that's how it's pronounced, Cachacal language. Yeah. <laughs> And by the end of his ministry in 13 years there, he had translated the New Testament and it revolutionized everything for the people as well as for him. He began to realize that learning linguistic patterns would help in every nation where people groups had not yet been reached. And so he founded a thing called Camp Wycliffe, the Wycliffe Ministry, named after John Wycliffe, the, the first guy who translated the Bible in English many, 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 many years ago. Well, he did that at Camp Wycliffe in 1934, and it morphed into the Summer Institute of Linguistics and then Wycliffe Bible Translators, where he first entered under the Wycliffe Bible Translator name into Mexico in 1935, a little bit before this era, but it has continued in this era with the famous names of people like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who went in 1955 to the Anca Indians, where he was murdered, all of his group. The ladies later went back and were able to translate the Bible into their language and see those original indigenous people that murdered Jim and his 
compatriots um, converted by the gospel. So today, there are more than 6,900 languages around the world, but 1,900 of them do not have any portion of scripture in their language. And that means about 180 million people still need a Bible translation that they can read in their heart language. So there's much work still to be done. Obviously, in the SBC, other work has happened through the International Mission Board. Baker James Cawthon was the longest tenured president there. David Garrison, his church planning movements, and Avery Willis in the work that he did with Master Life and at the IMB all have been very significant as well. We have sent out more missionaries than any other country in the world. 127,000 of the world's estimated 400,000 missionaries come from the United States. And that's, uh, just to give you a little comparison, Brazil is second, and they've only sent out 34,000 missionaries around the world. So you can see how much America is doing at this time to make a difference worldwide. Now let me, let me uh, try to draw this to a conclusion by making some insights and observations about the work of mission over history. First, let me say the church has done its best work in mission whenever it is focused outwardly. Okay, um, if, if church history teaches us anything, it's that we cannot be a vacillating church. We minister to a people who are in great need of the truth. We dare not make any attempt to soft-pedal that glorious truth. Martin Luther said that many, many years ago. It is absolutely true that we need to make sure that the focus stays on the mission. The mission is the word of God. It is the gospel of God. It is to see that it gets into the hands of all people, proclaimed to them, so that they are able to respond to it. And there is much work that still needs to be done, many nations that still need to be reached in this world. Um, it, we, it's estimated there's less than 2% of the world is evangelical today. That means that 41% of the world population is still unreached and it is often unengaged with absolutely no strategy yet in place to reach them. So we have to stay focused outward to see that the gospel is proclaimed to the nations, the people groups that have yet to hear it. Second insight, an observation, there is a cost to the mission, but it is not optional. That cost may even be our lives but we are called to this. It is a co-mission in which we are not abandoned to the mission by God, but we are able to join God in the mission. And as we go and do the mission, it may cost us resources. It may cost us time. It may cost us relationships and opportunities. It may even cost us reputation or persecution. It may even cost us our death, but it is not optional. It is a command from our Lord, and we must rightly take up the task of doing what we are called to do to see the gospel goes forward. When the church has thrived, it has thrived under persecution historically. That means it has defied the cost and said we will do whatever it takes to make sure the mission is proclaimed to the world. Third, Internal refocusing is necessary in the church from time to time as a corrective. In other words, there are times, and we have seen it historically, like the Reformation, when we need to go back and refocus, or like 
at the Council of Nicaea when we needed to make sure everybody was on the same page about who Jesus truly is. He is fully God and fully man. Those things are absolutely necessary. The theology, if it is not right, will result in something that looks like a cult in our world today, or it may, may create a blended type of, the word is syncretism, but it means that uh, a mix and mash of multiple different religions are all thrown together in a pot, and that stew becomes what um, the native people uh, embrace instead of the purity of orthodox gospel message that is proclaimed in, in the Word of God. So we need internal refocusing from time to time. It's not an either or, it's a both and, but we cannot let it keep us from being about the mission. It needs to supplement, it needs to support, it needs to buttress the mission, but the mission must go forward. Next, we've learned better how to do mission work by focusing less on ourself, our own desires, our own preferences, our own opinions, and even trying to make people like us. You know, the Americanized way of missions, the Americanized way of life, the Western way of experiencing um, uh, the walk uh, lifestyle of this world. Instead, we need to be focused more on the people he's created and allow that to help us figure out how they best um, make the gospel contextual to who they are, how they uh, see indigenous leadership grown, local native leadership grown, that can take the message of God's word and embrace it locally. And finally, unfortunately, humans are slow learners. And that has impacted our kingdom efforts in many places around the world, in particular in this thing we call the 1040 window, which is largely Muslim or communist in our world today, stretching from Africa at, uh, the, the, from between the 10 and 40 uh, latitude parallels. Uh, that window that, that swings east uh, past uh, China, um, you, you see all of that area is largely unreached with the gospel today. And part of that is the, John Stott says it this way, probably the greatest strategy of the tragedy of the church throughout its long and checkered history is its constant dependency and tendency to conform to the prevailing culture of the world rather than developing a Christian counterculture. And so as a result, we've uh, tried to do our own thing and where we haven't, we've tried to insist or push our way into others being like us. And if need be, there have been times we've even tried to conquer people or conquest people in imperialism and colonialism and give them the white man's religion, as it were. Instead, we need them to understand that this is a gospel of peace and it is a gospel that God wants to bring to people in places all over the world so that they can take it and embrace it as his gospel for them, their own gospel, a gospel of Jesus Christ for their people. Let me close with, uh, with this story uh, to, tonight. 
Uh, it's an important story. It, it happened in my own life many years ago. Uh, Avery Willis, I mentioned him before, uh, SBC missionary to Indonesia, and then came back and served as a vice president at IMB, our international mission board, for a number of years before his death. Uh, Avery Willis wrote a set of materials when he was a missionary in Indonesia that uh, he brought back to America. They were called Master Life. And it was a uh, most comprehensive discipling process. Uh, really, when I took it, it was 12 months long. It was really good, kind of a Southern Baptist answer to uh, navigators or, or something like that. And uh, in the midst of uh, that material, he tells a story. And it's an interesting story. It happened while he was a, a missionary in Indonesia. He said he would frequent uh, the local marketplace, um, the town center where they would set up produce and uh, sell goods to help folks uh, get the food they needed and everything else. Um, and, and day to day he would go to this place because it was the, the place to meet people, to, to be able to have conversations with strangers and uh, to extend hospitality and such. And one day he was talking to a lady. He said, he can, I can still remember her. Standing there as she was, all uh, decked out, she had a small crate in one hand that had two chickens in it. Uh, he assumed dinner for the next uh, day or two. Um, in the other side of her body, there was a young um, toddler, young child that had wrapped arms around that uh, other leg and held on tight as with for life uh, with, her, with that child's mama uh, there. And as he talked to her, he said, Ma'am, I have the greatest news that has ever been told that I want to share with you today. And he proceeded to talk to her about the gospel, about what Jesus had done on the cross of Calvary, about how that she could experience that too if she was willing to turn away from her sins and trust in Jesus as her Savior and Lord. And uh, Avery Willis went on to, to say that woman looked at him. She paused for a moment. She was very quiet. And then in a very pensive and reflective way, she said, Sir, if this truly is the greatest news that's ever been told, can you please, sir, tell me, why has it taken you this many years to tell me? Now just let that sink in. Because there are many people in the world today that would wonder that very same thing. Why has it taken us so much? And and as I close this conversation tonight with us, this lecture on um, the history of mission, may I say that the, the story is not completed yet. All of the history has not yet been written. And you and I are a part of the next part in history, the next era, the next stage, the next wave of workers that need to do whatever we can do to share the gospel to see that lost people are reached with the good news and that unreached people groups around the world have the opportunity to hear the gospel proclaimed in their own heart language. Oh yeah, most of us will never go to Indonesia. Most of us will never be missionaries in other places. But what about that person who lives next to you, your neighbor? What about that coworker in the cubicle next to yours? What about that family member that you've known for a long time doesn't know Jesus but needs to know him. Have you told him? Will you tell him? Would they wonder, why is it taking you so long if this is such good news? Father, in these moments together, I pray that you would challenge our hearts, convict us, 
and help us to learn through these experiences. We recognize this is not simply about information, it's about transformation, but transformation begins in my heart and in our hearts. May we be transformed by the gospel so that we can take it to others and they too may embrace it. For your glory and honor and for our good, we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Entrust Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you take what has been entrusted to you here and give it to another.